Hey, are you wanting to learn more about your Enneagram type or maybe even discover your Enneagram type? Are you looking for how to take the Enneagram test? Well, check out Crosspoint Ministries' newly designed Enneagram testing experience. Crosspoint has been using the Enneagram with Christian pastors and leaders for more than 15 years, and they've made taking the WEPS test a simple and optimized experience. You'll get your test results immediately, no emails needed. Your results are displayed in a clean, easy-to-read, and downloadable format. Plus, you can create your own account where you can keep your test results, download your profile, and track your personal growth all in one place. To take the test, go to crosspointministry.com slash Enneacast, and you'll get 20% off your first test. Just use the code Enneacast at checkout. Again, go to crosspointministry.com slash Enneacast and start your journey today. Conflict always comes from internal war. Uh, Our desires are at war within us. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Enneacast. Welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram. And today, we are starting a brand new series all about conflict resolution. So why do you think that this is an important topic? Well, when we were looking into this season, the thing that we just saw rising to the top of our social media feeds, to our personal lives, was conflict. That there is conflict everywhere. Yeah. We see it in politics. We see it in the church. We're seeing it in marriages and families. When we talked about the workplace, a lot of what we're dealing with in the workplace is interpersonal conflict. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed obvious, I guess, to us that we should dive deeper into how can we manage conflict as believers? And does the Enneagram have something to say about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, some of us are conflict addicted, Mm -hmm. uh, like we seek it out. And then some of us are conflict avoidant, where we're like, don't even want to. Yeah, we like smell it in the room. We're out. <laughs> some of us want to win fights. Some of us want to forfeit mm-hmm. fights. Some of us are so direct that it can turn into a level of cruelty and yeah. insensitivity. Other of us are like more sly, more manipulative in order to achieve our ends instead of doing a direct confrontation. All of us at some level have a false view and false approach to conflict. Yes. We have a way of approaching conflict that's broken and it ends up doing more damage than good. And the truth is that we all just need a much better way of approaching conflict. Absolutely. But before we jump into just discussing each type and how they might approach and respond to conflict, first let's talk a little bit about what conflict is and where does it come from? Since we're all about walking in the life and lifestyle of Jesus, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about conflict. So when we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we see essentially three truths about conflict. What is that first truth? The first truth that we identified is that conflict is good. And all of those withdrawn types that you talked about 
are like cringing in their seats. Like, how could you even say such a thing? But what we mean is conflict is unavoidable in life. So it doesn't mean it's fun or that you have to enjoy it or always seek it out. But Jesus didn't shy away from conflict and confrontations, especially when he was talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And even with his own family and friends, he knew what the truth was and the growth that would come from those conflicts. And he knew that it was worth any discomfort. Yeah. So maybe even more than it's good, it's worth it. It's valuable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We can just look at conflict and just go like, no, it's always bad, and it's always harmful, and it's not valuable at all. Yeah. And that's just not true. Yeah. Uh, Jesus models a different way of approaching that. Right. I was thinking about when Jesus tells the disciples, you know, that he basically is marching to the cross, that he will die. And Peter's like, no! If he had been avoidant of conflict, he could have shrugged it off and been like, well, I know what's right, but whatever. Mm-hmm. That would have been such a disservice Mm-hmm. to us as believers who have that passage, you know, and that story to learn from, and to Peter, who was going to be the rock of the church, and to all those disciples standing there, that Jesus used that confrontation to emphasize the importance of his kingdom work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So number one, conflict is good. Mm-hmm. Number two, conflict is transformative. When we work through conflict with another person, we learn a new way of understanding. You know, we hear a different point of view than our own, especially because we are not Jesus. When we come into a conflict, it's a bad idea to come in and going, I know exactly how to see everything Mm -hmm. in this. Coming into conflict with an open view allows conflict to be transformative. It can shape us. It can uh, help us to consider a different way of seeing things. Healthy conflict is also it's trust building because each person learns that they can disagree, but the relationship can still stay intact. So I was on a team with a group of people And we often came to situations with very different conclusions and feelings about what had happened. And for years, we couldn't really understand where the tensions were coming from or how to resolve it. But one of my friends who was on the team made a very conscious decision at a really difficult time to push through conflict with me. And we came at it head on. We talked things out. We listened to one another. And it was so transformative to our relationship. After that, we were extremely close and we could share anything because we weren't worried about, well, what will happen if we disagree? Because we had already gone through that process of, well, I know what will happen. We'll sit down. We'll talk about it. We might cry. You might feel mad. You might feel a little sting if somebody's called out your weakness. But we knew we could travel through whatever would come up. Mm. And our relationship became so strong. And now she's one of my closest friends. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So how do we see Jesus display this notion that conflict is transformative? I mean, you think about how often he got into conflict with the disciples where Mm -hmm. he was correcting them Mm -hmm. or pushing them into hard situations. You think about the Samaritan woman and the way that he treated her. I especially even think about like the cross. Yeah. I mean, why did he endure the cross for the joy set before him? Mm Conflict can be this incredibly transformative experience. Even if you think of like every story you ever love. Yeah. At its heart, it is a story about a character who is comfortable being put through conflict mm-hmm. and being changed and transformed through the course of that conflict. Absolutely. And Jesus has that view of conflict. So number one, conflict is good. Number two, conflict is transformative. And number three, conflict is an opportunity to love. So one thing we know 
in engaging the Enneagram is that it's all about having compassion for yourself and for others because it brings a level of understanding that we understand the lens that we're viewing the world from and we understand better, at least, the lens that other people may be viewing the world from. So when we use the Enneagram in conflict, we can use that information to love others because we can say, what you did affected me this way, but I'm going to choose to see that maybe there's more to that story. Maybe what felt really aggressive to me is actually just average daily conversation for you. And so I need to approach you with love and openness for us to work through the problem. And it's great for you to understand how you come across. And it's great for me to understand that we're different. Yeah, I think about even like if we take the posture that Jesus does, like Jesus takes the posture, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And if we would just approach a lot of conflict going, the person often doesn't even realize the amount of damage they're doing right now. I need to assume they think they're doing the right thing. Yes. And for us to begin to work through this. And so if we come into conflict with uh, this mindset that I'm here to win. Yeah. I'm here to destroy. I'm here to conquer. Mm -hmm. You may achieve your objective. But what you will not do is you will not love. Right. Or the opposite of I'm the victim. Yeah. All of you are jerks and I'm the victim. That's not approaching others with love either. And I think a key thing talking about where we see Jesus in this specific point is that Jesus wasn't a jerk. So (laughs) when we read his kind of sharp comments that he makes towards people, it was actually because he loved them. You know, he was really forceful with the Pharisees because he wanted them to get it. Mm -hmm. You know, he wanted the disciples to get it. He wanted people to be included in the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And that's why he did what he did. It was all because of love. Okay, so again, what does it look like for us as Christians to have a view of conflict that's the same as Jesus? It means that we can look at the life of Jesus and we can see that conflict can be good It can be transformative, and it is always an opportunity to love. So let's talk a little bit about the specific ways that each of our Enneagram types approaches conflict. Because here's the thing. As much as the Enneagram is showing us how we do see, the Enneagram also reveals all the things we're not seeing Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. we're entranced. So the question is, how does each type approach conflict? And to talk about that, we're going to talk about social style and conflict resolution style. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is the social style triad. These come from Rizzo and Hudson. And what this means is just the way you approach social things. Mm -hmm. It's your style of being social. Yeah. And as we know, conflict, it usually involves you and someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, those nines out there, they have a lot of internal conflict to deal with. But we're talking about conflict between you and someone else. So it's key for us to know how do you even come into a social setting, much less conflict. So there are three different social styles, and that's going to be the assertive social style, which is type three, seven, and eight. So these are our most aggressive numbers. They're independent. They're very strong-willed. They know what they think, and they may tend to undervalue emotion. And then the second social style is compliant, 
And this is type one, two, and six. And these people are more dependent. They want to follow the rules. They care about the group. How is this going to be perceived? How will this reflect on me for future engagements with people? And they might undervalue their thoughts. So they're going to be quicker to take action. They're going to have high emotion, but they can get really jumbled in thinking clearly and logically and analytically. And then the final social style is the withdrawn style. And that's type four, five, and nine. And these are people who are more turned inward. So they're going to go into their minds to think through a conflict, to reflect on a conflict. And they're really okay with kind of being an island. And so it takes a lot more for them to push themselves into a social situation, much less a conflict in a social situation. And they undervalue action because they're withdrawn. So -hmm. they're pulling back, not moving forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the three social styles are assertive, compliant, and withdrawn. And again, we're going to go more in depth in each episode Mm -hmm. when we get to your type. Okay, so that is the social style triads. Now let's talk a little bit about the conflict resolution style triads. And these also come from Rizone Hudson. What does it mean, conflict resolution style triads? Exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) How do these people attempt to resolve conflicts Mm -hmm. when conflicts inevitably arise? And there are essentially three approaches. So the first triad is the competency group. So these are types one, three, and five. The competency group, uh, these folks are all about like, let's make this efficient. Mm -hmm. Let's make it clear. Let's make it measurable. We don't need to get super emotional about everything. Let's just take care of the facts and the details and do it with a high caliber Mm -hmm. and knock it out. The second group is the positive outlook triad. Now, this is types two, seven, and nine. And the positive outlook, the glass is half full. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to work out okay. There's a sense in which they're going like, hey, it's okay. We can figure this out. (laughs) There can be a tendency with this group to sometimes downplay the severity of the problems that are in front of them. Um, But they essentially bring sort of an upbeat, hopeful disposition Mm -hmm. to the problem and hoping that We're going to get there. We're all going to conquer the mountain together. And then finally, the third triad is the emotional realness triad. And these are types four, six, and eight. And these folks, they deal with conflict by going, here's the reality and the truth of what I think and what I feel. Mm -hmm. And I expect you to show up with all of your authentic self, too. And we're just going to have at it. We're going to be straight, all cards on the table. (laughs) We're all going to put it out there. And it's going to be a big jumbled mess. But the emotional sort of connection And honesty is what's going to lead Mm -hmm. us forward. So much intensity. Yeah. Now, here's the question. Of course, all three of these groups, are they wrong? No. Are they incomplete? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's the trick. The trick is not that any one of these groups is completely off base. It's that they're not seeing the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And that's why we run into these problems, because we fixate on our way and we neglect these other approaches. Yes. And you'll notice the three styles in each of these different areas are not the same. So the three, seven, and eight are not assertive and competent. They're each different. And that's why when you look at your number, you'll see when I'm in conflict, I have so much in common with an eight. But actually, whenever I'm just in a social situation, I have more in common with a six, you know, and we bring in those different flavors because we're a part of these other groupings. I think that's really interesting to know because you can see, oh, I'm a little more withdrawn like this number, 
but then I'm also emotional, like that number. And it just adds to the flavor that each of us brings to each situation. Yeah. So if we don't remember which type is what style, we will talk more in depth about social styles and conflict resolution styles as we go through each of the types in our series. Yeah. Okay, so that is a brief overview of some of the things that we'll be talking about as we make our way through each of the types in this new series on conflict resolution. And the truth is that we could spend the next hour sharing our personal experience with conflict, but instead, we have someone with us today who has a lot more wisdom about conflict and how our stories and our Enneagram type tie in with that conflict. So when we come back, we will be speaking with the brilliant psychologist and theologian, Dr. Dan Allender. Stay with us. Hi, listeners. It's Anna, media editor. Here at Love Thy Neighborhood, we partner directly with local nonprofits right here in Louisville. Over the past seven years, our interns have provided over 130,000 work hours free of charge to local ministries. My name is Christy Robison, and I am the director here at Hope Place. Hope Place is a Christian community development center seeking to make hope tangible through the body of Christ in South Louisville, one of the most internationally diverse places in the city. They provide youth and children's programs, adult English classes, and engage actively in the community. I asked Christy how she could encourage young adults looking for an internship through Love Thy Neighborhood. This is something, when I think about the LTN interns, this is something that I wish that I would have had the opportunity to do before I went out into the workforce because there's so much that they learn. So it could actually even change the course of what you think you want to do. Like once you start getting hands-on experience in a field, you may decide that, hey, God is leading me here. So I definitely think it is something for sure that every young adult should have the opportunity to do before they go out into the workforce. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Allender. Dr. Dan Allender is a psychologist and theologian. He's the founder of the Allender Center, which has brought healing and transformation to hundreds of thousands of lives by bridging their stories of trauma and abuse with the story of the gospel. He serves as professor of counseling psychology at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He's authored and co-authored nine books, including his most recent work, Redeeming Heartache, how Past Suffering Reveals True Calling. Dan and his wife Becky live on Bainbridge Island near Seattle, Washington, and we are so honored to have him joining us today. Welcome to our show, Dan. Jesse and Lindsay, thank you so much. What an honor to be with you both. Well, it is our joy. You know, we told you this just a moment ago, but your work has just meant a great deal to both of us Mm -hmm. personally and has impacted our lives and the lives of many people that we love. And so we're really glad for this time with you. We thought that maybe it'd be helpful to start here Can you tell us what your Enneagram type is? I would love to do that. But (laughs) like the complications of life, I'll I'll just say that I'm often pegged to be an eight. Mm -hmm. But I would say, like anyone, I'm an idiosyncratic eight. 
And yeah. uh, I was in a conversation with Ian Crone about th that category on his podcast. And he basically said, nah, I think you're an inverted four. Mm. And from my standpoint, it's one of the reasons I love the Enneagram is if you think you know it, you're already lost because <laughs> it's almost sweetly unknowable, yet mm. incredibly helpful to give us a sense of the trajectory of what our lives bring onto this earth. So I would yeah. say I'm probably an eight. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, we're kicking off a brand new series on conflict resolution and the Enneagram. And we're looking at how we can use the Enneagram during conflict to improve the health of our relationships. So how would you define conflict? Oh, what a great question. What, I mean, what a fun question. And <laughs> this is where I, I think I'd like to defer, if you would, to the Apostle James, because I think he's got a better idea than I do. And he, he speaks about it in James chapter four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You mm. covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If I had to begin this, what I'd say is conflict always comes from internal war. Uh, our desires are at war within us. Mm -hmm. And I think James is just, of course, brilliant as he describes the two issues. The one is you don't ask. And I think that becomes an incredible part of conflict for all of us. When you don't know how to ask, those desires don't go away. They, in some sense, just evolve within you, often with hurt, with disappointment, with mm. frustration. So unaddressed desire is inevitably part of all conflict. But then you've got the other side, and that is you don't receive because you're demanding. So we've got two issues. We disconnect from what we do desire, or we demand our desire. And therefore, even if we were to receive, it wouldn't actually bring us what our heart most deeply wants. So that core conflict of, look, between Becky and I, my wife, she is brilliant at not asking. And I'm brilliant at demanding. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an mm -hmm. eight, mm -hmm. sort of. She's a nine. Mm -hmm. And you can just see the kind of typical tensions that an eight and a nine is going to have between the challenger who's intense, intimidating at times, and desirous to bring her what she wants. But for her to know what she wants means that she's got to allow herself to name what generally a peacemaker is not going to, I mean, it, she is truly a sweet, kind, in some oh, many ways, deeply affable. But uh, to want is dangerous for a nine. Mm -hmm. And that tension comes out, birthday presents, comes out even making decisions about yeah, like what, where we might be eating dinner. So all that to say, conflict is inevitable, inevitable. Like there's not a human being you will be on the earth with. There will be conflict. But can we come back to James' perspective? Can we name the desire 
where we are in war because we won't ask or we won't receive. Mm. You've dedicated a lot of your life's work to engaging people's stories. So with what you're saying, conflict is pervasive in our life story. Like it's inevitable. How do you feel like conflict influences who we are? Like how does it tie in with story and the story we tell ourselves of who we are? Oh, again, Lindsay, I think it's such an important question because the war of desire began well before we even had a name for it or Mm -hmm. before we were even aware that we were in the context of conflict. You know, four-year-olds, the research is stunning. Four-year-olds can read motivation. Mm. They can read the difference between motivation and intention and terrifying they actually have a pretty keen acuity of being able to discern when a parent or authority figure is lying. Mm. So we have to acknowledge that even at age four, the desires that are there, like to play or or to go to sleep or to have more food or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, is likely in some degree of conflict with parents, siblings, etc., And how we even at age four metabolize desire. I mean, some have learned screaming will work. Others have learned there's nothing you can do. There will be nothing that will be provided for you. So you better learn to shut down, mm-hmm. accept what's there and just endure it. So we're making unconscious nonetheless decisive decisions, even as young as three, four, five, as to what we'll do in a world, our unique world, with regard to desire. Right. So even as our, like, basically our story is made up of the ways that we are taking action to get our desires or the way we are affected by the actions of others seeking their desires, and that that's inevitably going to cause conflict because we don't have cohesive (laughs) desires. Like I want my toddler to go to bed and she wants to stay up. And so our desires are at war between us. And the way we deal with that conflict then is going to impact both of our stories. Absolutely. And the idea that we are meant as in any relationship to provide a kind of attachment structure, mm-hmm. a deep attunement. Uh, I know you want to stay up and how fun it would be to be mm-hmm. able to stay up and yet containment and you're going to go to bed. Mm-hmm. And with the wailing or with the threatening to be able to say, it's really hard, isn't mm-hmm. it? To have something you want, be disappointed and you're going to go to bed. So the interplay between that attunement and containment is the context, again, of tenderness and strength. I mean, that's what we were made for, tenderness, Mm -hmm. a capacity in one sense to be merciful and kind and to receive that. And yet also we were made to be able to have and receive strength from others, which is another word for the issue of justice. So we were made for mercy and justice. And even in the world of your toddler, you're teaching her about mercy and justice by how you engage desire Mm. and her own response to the limits, to the, the containment that you 
that you wisely and kindly offer her. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about this thing called the 90-10 rule, and I don't recall where I first learned about it. But the general idea was that when conflict explodes in a relationship, that uh, that 10% of your emotional reaction is actually about the facts of what are happening in real time in that moment. But 90% of your reaction is actually coming from the past. Mm. So it's coming from unhealed wounds. It's coming from deep emotional need. It's coming from unmet desires. And so whenever we encounter a situation and we, we go, man, I'm really overreacting right now. Or, mm-hmm. or Enneagram nines, mm-hmm. you may go, I'm underreacting right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, both of those can kind of, they're, they're being fueled by that 90%. So in my marriage, my wife and I have tried out this thing where we'll go, hey, what's the 90% here? In other words, like, let's stop wasting all of our effort on this 10%. Mm-hmm. And let's actually talk about the, the 90%, the real, the real juice that's, that's fueling this, this argument right now. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, I, I'll borrow it from now on, but it's <laughs> it's that framework that Gottman and uh, some of his researchers came out with regard to conflict in a marriage, where they were able to really do a kind of assessment of the process of what a couple was arguing about. And what they discovered was 70% of the conflict that people have has no clear solution. It's not mm-hmm. a matter of this person's right or this person's wrong. But to be able to say 70% of what we're fighting over really has no legitimate conclusion that would resolve it, which puts us back into that 90-10. The majority of times, I know certainly without having had that figure that most of the conflict that's coming between my wife and I has to do with unaddressed, at least at that moment, unaddressed issues that if we would just stop and step back and take a breath and to have that kind of honesty that you and your wife do, Jesse, to be able to say, let's talk about the 90. I just can't think of how many unfortunate, heartbreaking moments would have been curtailed at least, if not forestalled, if we had had that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. Yeah. she A few years ago, she just started going, okay, what's the 90%? I'm like, oh, we're having a real conversation. <laughs> like, like we're, we're going to talk about some real things now. It's not about the trash anymore. <laughs> no, it's not about the trash, you know. And, and typically there's a wave. There's like initially there's the anger. Mm-hmm. So I'm, here's what I'm really mad about, but almost always grief mm-hmm. is very closely behind. Mm-hmm. And what I'm actually mm-hmm. upset about is all of the sadness of unfulfilled hopes, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, so for anybody listening, what's the 90%? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Okay, when we come back, we will be continuing our conversation with Dr. Dan Allender, including how we can resolve conflict and repair the damage that it has done. So stay with us. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. 
To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. It's the Anycast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. And we're here with Dr. Dan Allender, continuing our conversation on conflict. You know, often... Dan, we get into conflict with other people, and as we get into conflict, we can easily begin to realize, like, we don't have a common goal with the other person. Like, we may have two very, very different goals in the course of this conflict. What should be our goal when we're engaging conflict with other people? I go back to such a simple phrase. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do so for the glory of God. So I, it's pretty abstract to say it that way. But the bottom line is we are meant to participate in one another becoming even more glorious. And to say we're all very broken, but we're all stunningly beautiful, made in the image of God, recreated in the image of Christ, and then framed like no one ever on the earth before or after. So in that sense, your very being, your identity is a reflection of God. So for you to not be growing is in some ways saying there is no God. For you not to choose the disruptive, complex path of becoming more like God is in some ways just to bind your heart to a form of the status quo, which never is the ultimate work of God. So I think it always comes back to you were meant for glory and the person you're with is meant for glory. And we get to participate in growing one another's glory in a way in which even eating and drinking becomes a context to play with glory. Mm, That's good. That is really good. In our current era, we've added a new layer to conflict, and that is social media. So a lot of times we see on social media, that's where a lot of conflict is happening. Do you have any advice for people about engaging in conflict in the digital age? (laughs) Well, I accidentally uh, got on Instagram. Uh, during COVID. <laughs> Accidentally. I, and I honestly don't remember how I did it, but I, apparently I must have or been in some kind of fugue state when I signed up. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, I, I don't know if I am the best to answer because I'm not on Facebook. I, I don't do social media because I have never found it actually leading to a sense of life. Now, I also mm. cheat and occasionally will what's called lurking, get on my wife's Facebook. Uh Uh But I think the first and foremost category is it trivializes the word friendship. Mm. Uh, It debases the concept of care uh, and involvement. On the other hand, it's sweet to be able to see, you know, people's birthday parties, uh, at least up to a point. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm not counter, but what I'd say is, 
know that your time on it is often sucking away your life mm. in a way in which what it sets up is comparison. You know, I think that is one of the great egregious portions of social media is it creates envy. Yeah. creates a sense your life is so much better than mine. Look at your happy family. Look at your happy trip. Look at your happy this, whatever. Mm -hmm. And very few people put anything up like, I've had an absolutely horrible day. And I, I threw my Bible across the wall. Here's a picture of it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying that that would be worthy to be posted, but it's never posted or seemingly mm -hmm. never. So the comparison envy, I think, is huge. But it's the anonymity allows people to assault other human beings in a way that I would hope they would not do if they were face to face. I fear they might in our culture. But between those two of we're not face to face. And in that, I don't bear the response ability. And I want you to hear how I said the word, not responsibility, but the response ability to you. Mm. And on the other hand, I don't think there's anything darker in the human heart than envy, because I not only wish to have what you have with envy, I, I want to ruin it for you so that you can't. Mm. That is where lust and anger, I think envy is in one sense where those two rivers meet and where those two rivers meet, no human being is ever meant to swim. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about Jesus a little bit. You know, how does Jesus influence your outlook on conflict? And how can the gospel reshape our vision for conflict? Well, it, it, years ago when they had the ridiculous bracelets, you know, WWJD, mm. you know, obviously it made somebody a lot of money. And I hope that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope they used it well. But, you know, the dilemma was, what would Jesus do? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can figure out Jesus, then you're a way brighter and more mature man than I am. He is so unpredictable, yeah. mm -hmm. so compelling, so kind, and yet so deeply disruptive. So in so many ways, following Jesus is a lot like, and let me make the parallel, you know, I've had at least three or four wives. Uh, I've been married to the same woman for 45 years. <laughs> but the fact is, you know, as you evolve in your marriage, it's like the Becky I married is definitely not the Becky that she is today. Right. So uh, it, it, I would almost say equally so. The Jesus I met in the early mid 70s. It's just not the Jesus I know today. And so somebody asked me a while back, like, when did you become a Christian? And at least in that context, because some of the work that Jesus was doing in my life, I said, I think two or three weeks ago. And they were like, what? What? And it's like, uh, look, I think if I died 30 years ago, uh, I'd be with Jesus. So chill out. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is... There's something about my engagement with him today that feels so different than it was at that point three weeks prior. So what we can begin to say is Jesus will meet us as he wishes, when he wishes, 
in the way we need most to, in some sense, address both our brokenness and the wounds that are there, but also our glory and our beauty. So in some ways, uh, Jesus loves to play, and it's never cruel. It's never contemptuous. I mean, we have a passage Paul speaks of in Romans 2, verse 4, where he says, it is the kindness of God mm-hmm. that leads to repentance. Jesus is kind, even when he's saying hard, hard things to our soul. So if you ever hear a Jesus that is harsh, contemptuous, degrading, all I can tell you is you're not hearing Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So could you walk us through some ways that we can resolve conflict, specifically as believers who are seeing that, you know, conflict is a clash of our desires? How can we go about that resolution? Oh, again, what a lovely question. But I think this is where I, I just love how the Enneagram can help us be a mirror. So in some ways, the issue of... But I'll speak about, again, an eight and a nine, because that's obviously what I've underscored mm-hmm. with regard to our marriage. But I think an eight often fears being controlled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yet a nine is fearing being forgotten, not seen, yeah. not taken their presence as glorious. So if we just even have that much of a clue to be able to, and again, fancy word, but just bear with me. If we have a hermeneutical key, meaning Mm -hmm. like when you read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you ought to know that the Wall Street Journal is a more conservative orientation than the New York Times. It doesn't make one or the other more true, but you need to know its drift, Mm -hmm. its hermeneutical key. So if, if my wife understands I have a hard time having somebody have power over me. Well, when she says something like, you didn't take the trash out, my response generally is not, oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. It's more, I was doing other things that frankly are more important. Well, as such a defensive, offensive response, If she can begin to look into my world and say, oh, control is a huge issue. And if I can look into her world and begin to address being forgotten, not seen, your presence not important within your own family, Mm -hmm. it just provides not just a key for seeing, I think it provides a level of tenderness, that sense of, oh, If I understood what wounds you continue to bear, uh, our our hearts were meant, you know, as Jesse put words to earlier, the idea that our hearts are meant to feel on behalf of the other. I mean, it's one of the sweetest things about seeing newborns together is that if Mm -hmm. one's crying, the other will often orient their head. Even if they can't move their head, they'll orient their head toward the pain they hear in the other. And generally, that's referred to as mere neurons. So even though the child doesn't understand self, the other, pain, we're wired to enter something of the heartache of others Mm -hmm. unless we are resisting and refusing. 
And yet that very nature of, can I get a window into your way of being in the world and also how it's come about? I believe that's both understanding, but it's less cognitive than it is a kind of empathetic presence to grieve on your behalf, even in the small matter of whether the trash got taken out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it really requires a great deal of of showing up and imaginative empathy. Like there's mm-hmm. a, there has to be an ability to to go, gosh, if I live the story you've lived and I came from the family you came from and I live through the experiences you've lived through, can I imagine at some level that I would also feel mm-hmm. so many of the things you're feeling? Mm-hmm. And and yes. that's work and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Especially if you're angry in the moment. Yeah. You know, it's hard right. to calm your your physical body down to then be able to have that higher thinking. Right, right. Because we're going, I don't care about your childhood. Just do what I freaking told yeah, you to do yeah. and we won't have this problem. Yeah. Dan, talk to us a little bit about this. You know, this is kind of uh, two sides to this question. How can we repair damage that we have inflicted on others during conflict? And then how can we heal from the damage that's done to us? So there's kind of a question of like maybe a, a bit of damage repair and repentance maybe is one side of the coin and then the need for healing on the other side. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would take us back to that passage in Romans 2 where it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And then Paul goes on to say, and why? Why do you deal with the kindness of God with contempt? So already that sets up in just a, a, a matter of a few words, some of the war that's there. Can we address shame between us? Whenever there's conflict, there will be shame because there's fear, fear of how this will go, fear of what's going to happen. And some will be more aware of that fear than others. I think that's true for, you know, uh, uh, often eights are unaware uh, of the shame that's actually shaping them. But nonetheless, to become more aware of that leads us to being able to go, all right, if shame is there, then contempt has been historically what each of us have done to resolve that sense of shame. And that can be self-contempt or other-centered contempt. And I think you can go through the Enneagram and see which ones are more likely given one's place. But nonetheless, if we can stop, again, this is just such an important phrase, if we can stop the traumatic response when we're in any kind of conflict, again, conflict's not always bad. Iron sharpening iron is a picture of conflict. Yet when that iron sharpening iron occurs, there is a kind of play, a a back and forth, an intensity, a movement, but there's kindness there between those two people. When we lack kindness for ourselves or for the other, that's where we need to stop and to be able to go until kindness returns, any other interaction here will be foul. Even if we come to a resolve of the conflict, there will not actually be peace between us, even though there will be some form of conciliation. So. Kindness becomes the measure. Mm. Am I kind to my own fragmentation, my own hurt, my own disappointment? And that doesn't mean indulgent. It just means, are you kind to your desire? And in that, 
is there a kindness regarding the other in terms of a desire to bring goodness to them? And where that's not, step back. And I think that becomes the primary way to not only address in the current moment, but even historically, where there's been significant breakage. You know, can we go back and not go through all the details because sometimes those are obscured by age. Nonetheless, can we go back to say, what would that of 20-year-old man have been feeling? What would that 45-year-old man been feeling in those moments? Uh, and if we can be kind to that heart we were, and then kind to the person we've harmed, again, I think what we'll find is soil that will receive the seeds of forgiveness, soil that will actually bring about good fruit that will not only restore, but be able to help us be able to hold that past with a kind of, I wish it never occurred, but it did and they created scars. And yet somehow those scars even now reflect something of the beauty of God. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I think so much about, um, you know, we are called disciples. There's that sense in which we, we are being formed into a new person, a new way of being, a new way of walking, a new mm -hmm. way of living, a new way of perceiving. And formation is hard. Yeah. It's a process. Uh, you know, think about Paul calling it the fruit of the Spirit. Like, it takes yeah. time. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it takes nurturing and endurance. And uh, so even when we come to this topic of conflict, you know, it's like, what does it mean mm -hmm. to approach this conflict in this moment as a disciple? Um, and and part of that, part of the gift of the tool of the Enneagram is going, how much of my own unmet longings are showing up in this mm -hmm. argument right now? And what would it look like for me to try to take ownership of those things mm -hmm. instead of blaming the other person mm -hmm. for my stuff? And also mm -hmm. being able to look at it as an opportunity for this conflict is going to help me understand you better. Yeah. And by you, lots of people. Yeah. You know, if I have a conflict with a type five and we work our way through that, then now I have a greater compassion, a greater ability to see through the lens of future fives that I meet mm -hmm. and people yeah. who have those strengths. And so I love that the Enneagram just encourages us in our Christian faith towards compassion, which we see in Jesus. Like yeah. we see mm -hmm. him, just like you were saying, Dan, just that kindness of respecting the glory that's in each of us. I just love that. Okay, so be sure to stay tuned throughout our conflict series. We're going to be diving into each of the types and talk about how we can both approach and resolve conflict as disciples of Jesus. But Dan, I think before we go, we actually have five final questions for you, Dan. Are you ready? Oh, I, this sounds like a game show. Kind of it. All right, Lindsay, go with number one. Okay, Dan, who are two people you currently admire? No biblical character is allowed. First, uh, a theologian by the name of Esther Meek. And mm. she, uh, this will sound so tedious and boring, but she's a philosopher who 
um, in, invites the believing community to think about the importance of epistemology. Now, I know just that phrase will cause most people to go, what? <laughs> but it's the question of how do we know what we know when a car mm. begins to break down and the dude at, at the shop just listens to it and goes, ah, I think uh, this is blah, blah, blah. Well, it's an amazing knowledge to come to on the basis of sound. How does God shape us through that process? Uh, a, a second uh, is a gentleman by the name of Jimmy McGee, and he heads up a ministry uh, in Atlanta for African-American college students. And in this era, uh, addressing the gospel and the issues of uh, of racial trauma, uh, mm. it is a complex world, especially in the believing white community. A lot of pushback against uh, all of that. And his brilliance, both theologically and biblically, and his heart for students. So those are the two that jump out quickly. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Uh, question number two, how do you like to waste time? Um, I'm a fly fisherman. Uh, oh. Fly fishing has saved my life more mm. often than it's uh, threatened to take it. And what I would say is it, anything that gives us a taste of what it is to be caught in a world without time, mm. a world where time seems to fade from, but while also in the presence of something beautiful and compelling in something that you can never master and yet will give you a taste of the kingdom of God. That's why fly fishing is so compelling for me. Oh, mm. what a great answer. I went fly fishing for the first time two years ago, and it is, it's like entrancing. It's like the yes. movement of the line going back and forth and the, the cool of the water and the the strategy of hitting, you know, the, the, the depth and the correct, I mean, just the whole thing is like, I mean, you can, three hours can disappear and it feels like five minutes. What we, if I, we could, I'm sorry. No, so, you go ahead. Sorry, Lindsay. You go ahead. No, no, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to just say something silly because I'm not interested in fishing, but I would be curious if it would be just as transcendental to stand in the middle of a river and read a book. You know, let's put it this way. It depends on the nature of the book and how deep the water and what the current's doing. Okay. Well, if I'm ever out your way, I would love for you to take me fly fishing. Uh, I'll take that up. Okay. Okay. So what is on your nightstand right now? That's hilarious. Uh, enough books probably <laughs> to weigh down a camel. Uh, I'm a motorcyclist and I have friends who ask me for my bike and it's like, well, if I take it. Take my car. I don't care. But touch one of my books. <laughs> you you better know what you're asking. And oh, I'll, I'll loan a book. Mm -hmm. But there's a look like you screw up a book that I've written in extensively. Because I don't think a book is worth reading if you don't, in one sense, bleed over it. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, a nightstand of books. And currently, Pope John uh, Wuja. And his book on the body is probably at the very top. Mm. All right. Question number four. What is an important lesson that you have learned from failing? Mm. Oh, that, that humiliation is not the same as humbling. Mm. And that the gift of being humbled is indeed like the word humble, humus. 
same root, Latin root. And humus means dirt. There, there is a kind of eating dirt when you are humbled, but different than in some sense having your face smeared with dirt and humiliation. Mm -hmm. And failing is a gift to expose both desire, but also demand. Well, I'll go back to fly fishing. I remember the fish I missed almost always more so than the ones I caught. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's more compelling. Our brain actually remembers failure with a kind of acuity and often with a sense of shame, but not necessarily if indeed we do not give our hearts over to humiliation. Wow. That's really good. All right. Our last question is, what would you like to hear God say to you when you die? Oh, well, on actuarial tables, I've got about seven more years left on this earth. Now, obviously, uh, I could pass tomorrow or be here for decades, but I'm closer than my guess would be either of you, at least on actuarial tables. So what comes to mind are two categories. The first, and that is welcome, my good and faithful servant. But what I also assume, looking at um, Revelation 3, uh, verse 17, that there will be a white stone and with a name on it that will be given to me. And I will have a name that nobody else knows but the living God. I so desire to know and can't wait to actually learn my own name. And I've got, mm. I've got a few hints, but nothing definitive because nobody can know until that day. So I think that's what I look forward to hearing, that I have been received, that my labor, as flawed and broken as it is, has still been seen as worthy of welcome. And I'll learn my new name. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. It yes. has been so enriching and so helpful and clarifying to, mm -hmm. just to speak with you today. Well, you, you are welcome. If you benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Dan Allender. To learn more about Dan's fantastic work, check out the Allender Center's website at theallendercenter.org. You can find online courses and workshops as well as his books and weekly podcasts. You will not be sorry for diving in with Dan Allender. Again, you can find all of this at theallendercenter.org. And special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry who helped train us in the Enneagram. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. We provide internships focused on service, community, and discipleship for young adults ages 18 to 30. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Rachel Zabo is our media director and producer. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. Ooh.